0: Sing again from Psalm 80, this time verses 8 to 16 from Sing Psalms. Once you brought a vine from Egypt, drove out kings with mighty hand, set the vine in ground made ready, it took root and filled the land. We'll stand and sing verses 8 to 16.
1: Once you brought a vine from Egypt, drove out kings with mighty hand, set the vine in ground, made ready it to root and fill. and withered, and its branches burned with fire. Your rebuke has crushed your people, and they perish in your eyes.
0: We can uh, turn back to the chapter we read there, Ruth chapter 1, and I would like us to think about the first five verses of of the chapter. I'll just reread them. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the, wa- the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Killian died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I'd like us um, to give our sermon the title, When All Goes Wrong. And that is certainly the impression that these five verses that we've just reread uh, give to us. book of Ruth, of course, if we know the story, is very charming. But that's not the only reason to read it. Everybody likes a love story, and certainly by the end of chapter four, it's a very warm book. It can be read for lots of reasons, it doesn't take long to read the book of Ruth. You do it quite easy in half an hour. But as we do read it, uh, what's it all about? Well, of course, um, lots of suggestions could be made. I mean, it's a book about people, isn't it? In it, we're introduced to all kinds of people. Apparently there's nine main characters, and each of these characters are just examples of everyday life of people that we can meet, believers and unbelievers, different racial groups and so on. So it's a book about people. It's also a book about problems. And the problems are at different levels. There's the problem of a famine. That happened. There's the problem of having to live in a different culture as these people in Moab, as they discovered as they were living there. And there was um, problems, even caused by God's instructions. Because um, later on, when Boaz wanted to marry Ruth, there was a problem there caused by the Levitical laws. So the problems, of course, were overcome. That they were still there, as Ruth and uh, Boaz try to sort out their future. So there's problems highlighted in this book. At the same time, there's also God's providence. And it's not just God's providence at the end, it's God's providence the whole way through, where there's A whole range of what we might all regard as contradictory circumstances. And as we read them, we might say to ourselves, well, where's all this going? You know, know, what's the hardest thing to work out in life? Or what's the only thing we cannot work out in life? Providence. Is there anyone who can stand up and say that providence makes sense to our grasp of reality? Often, often, it just seems to be a whole range of strands or each of them going in different directions. And yet, in the end, it all works out. But providence can often be very difficult. This has often been pointed out. If we know anything about Hebrew, you have to read it backwards, the opposite direction. And that's the only way we can read providence. There's no one can say about this moment, I understand providence. But at the same time, there's also divine provision in this book. Salmon comes. How long does it last for? When does it end? I mean, God could have provided the remedy for the famine a day later, or a week later, a month later, or at least in this story, a decade later. God has got the ability to provide at any time, but He only provides at His time, no other time. And even in this story, we Ruth, there's a long-term purpose. A basic question we should ask of every book in the Bible. What's all this got to do with Jesus? That's the whole point of every book in the Bible. What's it got to do with Jesus? Well, what does Elimelech going to Moab have to do with Jesus? We know the answer to that question. Although Elimelech had no idea about it. One of his sons would marry the one of the ancestors of David. And through David, Ruth is connected to the royal line And from that royal line, Jesus will come. If Ruth had made a different decision here about not going back with her mother to Israel, what would have happened to Jesus? God's got a long-term purpose. Just mapping everything out. But here at the beginning, in verses 1 to 5, who's going in the right direction? We're told when it happened, in the days when the judges ruled, there in verse 1, The days when the judges ruled, well, they are described for us in the book of Judges. And if we're familiar with the book of Judges, there's one word that can describe it all, and that is turbulence. Get a period of spiritual prosperity, then for no apparent reason period of spiritual decline, and then spiritual prosperity, and then spiritual decline. It is possible that some of these judges rule simultaneously because they're not all located in the same place. Some of them are down in the south, and some of them are up in the north and some are towards the west. And they may have ruled at the same time and not have known about each other. But anyway, it was a very difficult time. Unpredictable. Meaning the famine here, it doesn't say it was throughout the land, It just says it was in it, so the famine may only have been in that area, but it's the days of the judges, there's no overall government system to arrange all the supplies. It's a period of great difficulty. The judges had to deal with enemies, And these enemies came from the north, and the south, and the east. And one of the enemies, or one of the tribes that was opposed to Israel, were the Moabites. And their oppression of Israel is described in Judges chapter three, where the king of the Moabites, a man called Eglon, ruled over them for 18 years. He was killed, rather graphically, by Ehud. And as a result of that, the people of Judah were delivered from the hands of Moabites for 80 years. We don't know when um, Elimelech decided to go to Moab, where it was before Eglon ruled for 18 years, or whether it was during the time Eglon ruled, or whether it was after. That may be the kind of question we would like to ask. When did this happen? But it's a question that's not of the slightest interest to the person that wrote the book. He tells us there in verse 1, there was a famine in the land. A famine in the land of plenty. A famine in the land that God said would flow with milk and honey. There's actually a famine in the land where there shouldn't be a famine. And therefore that raises the question, why is there a famine? And Leviticus chapter 26 tells us, where God lays out certain rules and certain um, consequences that will happen because of the people's disobedience. And in Leviticus 26 and verses 18 to 20 says this, And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sin." And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron, and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the field, or the trees of the land, shall not yield their fruit. Famine in the land of plenty. It's divine punishment, isn't it? And that's what the author wants to tell us. What is significant is not whether this happened before the Moabites caused trouble or when, or during the time that they had a couple of decades ruling over the Israelites Or where it was after. That detail is irrelevant. What is relevant. Is that God. Took action. And his action was connected. To the way people were behaving. In general. They had departed from him. So his blessing. Was not on the land. We are not to assume from this that that is why famines happen anywhere else. But it is why famines happened in the land of Canaan. They were under a special divine government. And because they had turned away from God, God turned away from them and his hand lay heavy upon them. And that leads us into this story. I'd just like us to think of three things, a test of where to go when all goes wrong. And then secondly, living up to your name when things go wrong? And then, thirdly, where did Elimelech choose to go when things went wrong? A, te- a test of where to go. I suppose Elimelech had three options. One option, was to stay where he was. After all, that seems to be what Boaz did. Just stayed where he was during the famine. A second option would be to go somewhere else in Israel. Because the famine may not have been in the north or in the south. The famine may have only been in the east. Down here, near the border with Moab. So a second option could have been somewhere else in Israel where there was no famine. Or there's this third option, travel 50 miles across to Moab. Depending on what job Elimelech had, maybe he could often see the plentiful fields of Moab. All he had to do was walk a short distance, and there they were. Plenty in the land of Moab, 50 miles away. As far as he could see, perhaps there was no problems. What choice did Elimelech make? Well, he went to Moab, as we can see. wonder why he did that. Because it's just a guess, of course, but I think he chose the easy option. And we can see that there in verse 1, he didn't intend to go for long. He only went to sojourn. Instead of being a sojourner in the land of Canaan, he was going to become a sojourner in the land of Moab. And the word sojourner, as we know, just describes a temporary arrangement. We can imagine him saying to Naomi, we'll just go there for a short time. And after all, it's only a short distance to get there. It's the easy option. That was the choice he made. And we don't immediately jump up to point the finger at him, do we? Just because something is easy doesn't make it wrong. Any more than just because something is easy makes it right. We just have to look at it and see what this author is telling us about this choice that Elimelech made. His intentions were short-term. God's intentions were different. When Elimelech went there, although he himself imagined he was making a short term choice, he actually made a life changing choice. He never came back from Moab. His plan didn't materialize. Instead, as we can see there from verse three, he died. We might imagine, well, now that he's died, Naomi will go back to Bethlehem. Naomi and her two sons We'll go back to Bethlehem. But the famine is still in Bethlehem. So Naomi and, depending on the age of our sons, they decided to stay in Moab. Is it too much to say that they had become Moabites? that they had discovered what they thought was a land of plenty. But across the border, nothing but trouble. But here in Moab, there seems to be plenty food. And Malon and Killian, well, they really absorbed the culture, didn't they? It wasn't long before they had married Moabite women. Their choice of their father had opened up a route for them. Who knows? But it's going to take them. Elimelech never saw his inheritance again. What a sad choice he made. It doesn't mean he wasn't a believer, of course. The writer gives no clue about that. What the writer could be suggesting is that Elimelech is a believer got all wrong. I suppose if there's one character we could liken him with it's righteous Lot. Because Lot did something similar, didn't he? When Abraham gave him the choice of which territory to pick, he chose the area towards Sodom. Because at that particular time, it looked like the Garden of Eden. That was before the judgment came on the area. Lot made his choice. went towards Sodom, then he was in Sodom. His family were like Sodom. And indeed the only reason that Elimelech could go to Moab was because of what Lot did himself. So Lot, as Peter says, was a righteous man who made big mistakes. Mistakes that lasted for generations, because here's Elimele, facing this dilemma that wouldn't have happened if Lot had not done what he did. test of where to go when things get difficult do we think elimelech failed the test leads us to the second point living up to his name what does Elime- the name elimelech mean It means, my God is king. His parents would have given him that name. And it's a name that says quite a lot of interesting things. At that particular time in history, Israel was the only nation without a king. Well, without a human king, that is. their king was God. That had been the arrangement made when they came out of Egypt, that the Lord would reign over them. And going by the name that his parents had given to him, Elimelech's parents embraced that idea wholeheartedly. And they wanted their son to live up to this outlook. Our, my God is king and therefore I will serve him. Every time this, somebody shouted the name Elimelech, this is what they were saying, my God is king. Heard every day in their house and everywhere else. And saying that, of course, they were saying that God would provide for them Defend them, give them a purpose in life. And as we think of Elimelech and his name, did he live up to it? Should a man with a name like his have gone to Moab? Of course, asking whether he lives up to his name also leads us to the ask, do we live up to our names? Not just the names that our earthly parents might give us. And no doubt there's many reasons why that's the case. But the names that God gives us. Do we live up to these names? You can just think about two or three of them. Believers. That's a name we have, isn't it? We are believers. That's how people become Christians in the first place. They hear the amazing gospel story of how God sent his son to live in this world, a perfect life, and then to die on the cross and pay the penalty for sin. And the only stipulation regarding responding to that is that we believe, believe in Jesus. We trust in him. We, of course, that faith is marked by certain features like repentance and so on, but it's a warm embrace of love. Faith, I mean, faith in Jesus is never a clinical response. It's something that comes from the heart. As our catechism tells us, we embrace Christ as he's freely offered to us. And perhaps we can look back to that day and we think about it often and marvel at the amazing aspect of God's grace. And so we should, if we're Christian. And if we're not Christians, we should avail ourselves of this offer that God gives to us to trust in him. Believers. But how's our faith today? Are we living up to our name? Do we trust him? Only you and I know the answer to that question. Well, God also knows. But there we are. We are believers, a beautiful name. Disciples. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. What is a disciple? Well, as I'm sure we all know, a disciple is a learner. Literally a learner who follows in the steps of his teacher. And is it not the case that When we first believed in Jesus, we were enthusiastic disciples. We couldn't get enough from the Word of God. All its statements astonished us. Our souls were fed, as the psalmist tells us, with the finest of the wheat. We devoured the bread of life, as it were. We love to be taught by the Holy Spirit as he enlightened our minds to grasp the riches of salvation. How is it today? We all know Kuiper's hymn, don't we? Where is the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? Where is a so refreshing view of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed. How sweet the memory still, but they have left an aching void the world can never fill. Amalek, forgot his name. Are we disciples? Saints. Set apart to God. Be a saint that's both negative and positive. Negatively, we confess our sins. A saint always confesses his or her sins. No perfect saints in this world. So they have that negative feature. There's also a positive feature. Because they're becoming less just like Jesus. Christlike. I mean, if we are Christians, and I think most of us are, and some of us have been on the road for a very long time, how Christlike are we? This is not a moment to look round at others. Just to look at ourselves. The only progress I am making, if it has been made, is to become more Christ-like. There's no other progress in a Christian life. Holiness is Christ-likeness, nothing else. Poor Elimelech didn't live up to his name. We should, perhaps, write beside it in the margins. God, keep me from being like him. Leads us to a third point. Where did he choose to go? Well, he went to Moab. Moab had many features fields full of harvests but there was not one place where he could worship. Moab had its alternative forms of worship. Terrible idolatry. If we choose to look up for it, took place at their location. Exact opposite or what took place in Israel. He couldn't worship there with God's people. That was very sad, wasn't it? What a disastrous choice to make. He almost did the opposite of Ruth. Ruth said, your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Elimelech kind of walked the other way. He thought he could go to Moab and avoid the problems. He went to Moab and discovered very sad experiences. He thought he could avoid living in hard times by going where life seemed easy. But he discovered it wasn't easy at all. Indeed, everything he had virtually remained and more. That was a choice he made. A sad choice. As we close, just ask ask a question. How do we live in times of divine judgment? The famine was a sign of divine judgment. How do we live in times of divine judgment? Because whatever else can be said about 2023, this is such a time. Well, surely one thing we can learn is don't do what Elimelech did. He imagined he could take the easy way out. But there's no easy way out. <clears throat> he should have stayed in the place where God was worshipped. Instead he went somewhere else. What should we do in our days of divine judgment? the years in which we spend our lives. Well, surely we should embrace the gospel of hope. Surely Elimelech, instead of heading off to Moab, should have started to repent and ask God, why is the judgment here? If he had done that, He might have had a different story. And surely in the times of of what we're facing, we are to embrace the gospel of hope, to remember that judgment is temporary and that ahead of us is a world of glory. we're to live, are we not, as if God is our king, as if Jesus is our king? And whatever comes along, to live up to our name. Elimelech's a beautiful name. My God is king. But sadly, the author's description of him doesn't indicate a beautiful life. And that is very sad. May all of us live up to our name in the days of divine judgment. Shall we pray? Lord, your word has many lessons. Ruth's a wonderful story. A beautiful, happy ending. But what a sad start. Help us, Lord. Help us to remember that you are king and we are to be your people, your subjects, We're to live up to the great privileges that whatever is over the border should not be attractive to our souls, even if it looks good, better to be in Bethlehem than to be in Moab, even if life was hard in Bethlehem. Lord, help us to be wise, to live as if you were our king. Grant it, Lord, for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing the remaining verses of Psalm 80. From sing Psalms, in verse 17. Let your hand be placed in blessing on the man of your right hand, on the Son of Man you've chosen, whom alone you cause to stand. We'll stand and sing these verses.
1: Let you. Let your hand be placed in blessing on the man at your right hand, on the son of man you've chosen, who Turning from you to our shame, strengthen us, revive and heal us. Then we'll call upon your name. Look on us, Lord God Almighty. Save us, give us light.
0: <clears throat> May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.